Welcome to the Fully Vested Podcast, brought to you by Dentons and the Chiro Society. As ever, there's a short health warning. This podcast is not designed to provide legal or other advice or give rise to a solicitor-client relationship. You should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Specialist legal advice should be taken in relation to specific circumstances. The views and opinions expressed by those on the podcast are their own and do not represent Dentons, Kairos, or other organizations that they are from. Please see Dentons.com for legal notices. Hello and welcome back to the Fully Vested Podcast. I am Tim Brownstone, your host, and once again, joined by the two Joes from Denton's, or as I like to refer to them, Joe Squared, <laughs> producer Ed. And this week, we have the privilege to be joined by Michelle Lamb, employment specialist, who is going to be walking us through everything from hiring, firing, and everything in between. So, Michelle, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Hello, thank you for having me. So, I thought I'd get sort of straight into matters today. Um, we've sourced a number of these questions from our listener base and our community. And if we start at the beginning, again, we're assuming our metaphorical sort of three people in a garage company life. Um, and just run us through some of the things that we want to look out for when it comes to negotiating those early founder contracts. If we start there and maybe go into employees after that. Sure. So um, the th key things that we need to think about in terms of an employment contract is that it should record the relationship. So um, when we're at very early stages, um, what you want to think about is you want to document that governs the way things run. If you're talking about a more junior employee, um, you want it to be short and tailored to that individual. Um, if it becomes long and cumbersome, it won't be clear, it won't be understood. Chances are it's not saying what you need it to say in, in basic English. So um, I guess key things to know are that um, employment legislation sets out some minimum terms that must go in these contracts. So things like hours of work, all the things you'd expect to see, like who is the employer? When did the employment begin? Where have they got to go to perform their work? Yes. If it's the garage, it will be the garage, but <laughs> we'll set out the address of the garage, that sort of stuff. Yep. Yep. Um, so those things are set out in, in employment legislation and you can find those and they will normally form the basis of a junior employment contract and then as things sort of escalate on for the more senior employees um, when you start to take on these more senior individuals they've generally been been around a little bit they've got a bit of experience they know the sort of things that you'd get in other other companies and they might be asking about things like the right notice period the benefits that they might get if any you know if they don't have any things like medical benefits because the, you know the company's not at that stage yet they still have certain minimum entitlements with regards to, you know, sick pay and um, after two years service, they gain rights like redundancy pay. Yeah. Um, so they'll be live to those sort of things. They'll be asking about things like holiday. So mm -hmm. they want to know, where am I? Am I at the statutory minimums? Is the company in a position where it can offer me a little bit more than that? Yeah. And certainly speaking from experience um, with Chimera, my own business, it, one of the things that I think most often come up in discussion has been the notice period that you pointed out. And very much from the sort of the employer standpoint, it's a case of the fact that while it may be a junior role, while you're a small company, it's still a big loss to lose that individual. And so I've, I've found that's been one of the most delicate points is getting the uh, that notice period right to not hem in and sort of make a, a junior employee feel trapped but at the same time knowing that if they were to up and leave it's not going to just be a case that their responsibilities get handed on to someone else because we're all pretty maxed out as it is so if you any are there any sort of standard rules of thumb 
in terms of if we were to say sort of employees one through to five so they may be doing junior positions but ultimately they're still quite important as those early hires yes so you need to think about the fact that you must offer at least the statutory minimum notice so that's one week per year up to two years and then after after that up to a maximum of 12 weeks for 12 years it's one week per per year of service yeah. um so as long as you're giving a statutory minimum um you can enhance that as you see fit i think often the consideration is as you say you need to think about what is going to put me in a position where i can get a another employee into the business to perform this exiting employee's role and give me enough time for them to get comfortably their feet under the table established with the connections yeah. um that's what you're really looking at in terms of my business and how it works how long would i need to get somebody else established in this role mm -hmm. when you've got much more senior employees and you're looking at things like post-termination restrictions which may not be applicable here depending on the nature of the business and the size um there'll also be an interplay with those restrictions how long you need protection for but that's probably another another yeah. angle for us to get into yeah and more of a question for the the two joes here but have you guys ever been negotiating deals from either side of the table whereby due diligence has been done let's say into senior staff or it or even you know the wider staffing and because of something in maybe an early employment contract that was in one of those initial hires they didn't get updated with all the the rest of them and it ended up becoming a bit of a a bit of a nightmare and caused a bit of grief or is that not tend to, to happen I, I wouldn't say that you ever get to a situation where it causes grief um but it's it's very much not uncommon if that's not too many double negatives um to get to a situation where employment agreements or new employment agreements have to be entered into yes. where it's an amendment to the existing one or a fresh employment agreement um and normally because we're talking about a situation where capital is being invested mm -hmm. and so if you get to a situation where someone's saying i will invest x million we need to negotiate a new service agreement then normally this, the answer is, okay, send me a draft and off you go. So it's never kind of become a nightmare because everyone wants to do it. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. But it does mean that exactly that kind of checklist of things that Michelle's already given you, start you, know, you start to go through that list. Mm -hmm. um, and for senior employees, you normally actually have a separate category of individuals where you might call them key employees, you know, or you know, where you might go so far as to say, well, you know, if that person fell under the proverbial bus, what happens here, you know, and how critical is that person to the business? And often it's the, you know, the, the founders in an early stage is still driving that forward or the CTO or just the someone who's just got the kind of the IP tech bit of the business is actually in their brain. And that's then a real difficulty. And you've got to figure out how do we deal with the contingency that person might not be around. Yeah, I can attest to that. We've just renewed uh, Chimera's What Happens If Tim's Hit by Bus Insurance. Right, Never. good. I'm pleased to say that they get a nice cash payout should it happen. So. Fully underwritten. I'm glad <laughs> indeed, to hear it. Indeed. <laughs> so if we, our, our little metaphorical trio, they've, they, they've, they've started up, they've raised some early investment as we discussed in one of the previous podcasts, and now they're out, they're scaling the team. In terms of what ought to be in place and what typically is in place with the early stage company. It's very rare that you end up with those initial hires having your grievance procedures in place, having a documented procedure for what happens if disciplinaries come up. Um, but I guess the question to you, Michelle, is what, what is what has to be in place before that happened and what ends up being in place as and when the need arises, I guess is 
the differentiation here. What has to be in place in terms of the contracts, particularly, is going back to those Section 1 statements. So there is provision in that Section 1 statement for disciplinary and grievances, but usually what you put then in the contract is just if the person wants to raise a grievance, they raise it to, you name, positional person. Yes. Um, and if they want to appeal a disciplinary decision, they raise that to person. Those are the sort of procedures that we say when you get into your company procedures, you want to get in first. So you might not go as far as a fully fledged employment handbook like you might have if you've got 100 staff, mm -hmm. but you might start by saying, actually, what I'd really like in place is data protection procedure, um, disciplinary and grievances. And it's often IT and communications. Those are the ones yeah. where you've got a few staff and you want to make sure people aren't misusing their emails or saying things they shouldn't be saying on social media. It's that sort mm -hmm. of stuff. They tend to be the ones that come first. And then as things grow, it might extend out to other all sorts of other policies and procedures that we you know regularly help with and eventually yeah. a fully fledged employment handbook. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I just, I couldn't underline that, you know, more frankly and, you know, I've rarely seen early stage venture back companies who've got the full suite of employee handbooks in no. place. I'm sure it comes as no surprise to you. It just doesn't happen, no, <laughs> in reality. But right. um, there are certain terms that ideally would be non-contractual um, and those are what we put in the policies. That's why we distinguish between what goes in the contract and what goes in policies. So in due course, where you think you might want to change these things in, in the future, that's what these sort of non-contractual policies are useful for, yep. it's better to have that in a policy yeah. than written into your contract. But having a provision in the contract which says that those policies may exist from time to time is fantastic, yes. right? Yes. So you need to, it needs to be in the contract to say there might be a policy, yep. and that policy can be updated unilaterally you know, from time to time by the company or however it works. But but if you don't have that reference, then you can't incorporate those terms in there. You might struggle to incorporate those terms in the future. Well, then quite, you know, we're, we're currently actually setting up formally in this, and rolling out our employee handbook. And I was thinking, as Michelle was saying that, that if we'd done this and, you know, back in day one or certainly even two, three years in, every single reference to this gets reported to so-and-so would have just been me. And yeah. <laughs> had that not been updated downstream, I would have been an even more, even busier person than I am now. So um, I didn't, wouldn't have time to come and report, record the podcast with you guys, that's for sure. The IT one is useful because if you think about a lot of these businesses are either going to be digital or, you know, digitally enabled in yeah. one way, shape or form. And they're often, they're going to... Uh, be reliant or at least encourage employees to use the benefits of social media for promoting the business. You know, it's going to be part of the modus operandi mm -hmm. for, for taking that business to market. Um, but, um, you know, I think what Michelle was hinting at there is sometimes you might get an employee, you know, either kind of, you know, on a, a boozy night out or, or nefariously using social media for reasons that they shouldn't do. Yeah. Uh, and in those circumstances, you might want something more concrete to point to as to why that is a disciplinary event rather than just something that ought not to have happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the lines, because it's such an interplay between what's I suppose historically seen as something that's quite personal, your social media account, mm -hmm. and what you might be asking them to do on behalf of the business and, you know, which statements are made on behalf of themselves when, when they're using a personal device, for yeah. example, it all becomes very blurry. And I think if you've got something in place with a basic set of rules, that'll only help you if you have difficulties or ideally to prevent those difficulties in the first place. You know, we don't want to be looking at it with retrospect after you've had a, a, an issue. We want everybody to be clear. These are the guys in which I'm talking on behalf of the company and what I'm saying is authorised by the company. And this is what's personal to me and doesn't, you know, tarnish the company's reputation if, you know, it's not exactly to the, the policy line or yeah, similar. Absolutely. And I, I think certainly on that point, 
not to get off track at all, but it's, that's becoming increasingly more important because even in the last five years, we've seen an evolution whereby companies would be very neutral and they wouldn't express political affiliations, etc. Whereas now actually companies are doing well out of having personalities. And sometimes not even even if it's not even a you know a nefarious accidental post or whatever it might be, but sometimes lines can accidentally be crossed and if you just have the guidelines in place then it's easier for that not to happen. Um Okay, so that's our sort of our, our basic sort of, I guess, do's and don'ts um, for the early stage. Before we go into sort of what sadly might happen if someone ends up not working out or for whatever reason they exit, not getting into the good and bad leave clauses, we covered that in a previous podcast. Um, but it's very often that, you know, a company's, even at the early stage, it's not just going to be the founders, it won't just be the early employees, but eventually they're going to set up a, a board of governance. So, Michelle, if you can run us through how are directors employed differently, and if we could have just both the executive directors and the, and non-executive directors considered um, within this answer, and, and sort of what liabilities do they have for advice that's given to the company I guess that's more in the case of a non-exec versus the execs. Yeah, so for anybody who hasn't come across the terms before, because that's the starting point really for us, sometimes we find people don't know what, you know, they see the terms exec and non-exec directors. So executive directors are employed directors, so they have, you know, employment rights as per other employees, and those are the ones that I typically deal with the most often. Yeah. Um, so we can run through what entitlements they have. Non-executive directors are generally engaged in a, um, advisory capacity, they might have multiple appointments and um, they're generally self-employed so they have fewer rights. What we usually do with them is just have a sort of short letter that summarises the relationship with the company so everybody can refer back to it but that's mm -hmm. generally what happens so we can sort of move on from them. Yeah and it's worth also here touching on a kind of third category of, of advisor. Um, we've talked about directors and non-executive directors both of whom have uh, varying kind of degrees of, of statutory duties to to the company, but there's a sort of more informal um, role that, that could be played in, in a kind of informal advisor uh, to the board, um, who would have less in the way of, of uh, formal duties, but could still provide a, a useful advisory role to the board. I think that's a fantastic point because certainly for myself, we didn't formalise a a board of governance until two and a half, three years into the company. Um, but I've had a board of advisors more or less since day one. And for me, that was just essential because, you know, I was fresh out of university. I had no real business experience to speak of. And assuming that I knew everything was would have been stupid. <laughs> so <laughs> it was very important for me to, to plug the gaps in knowledge and experience that I didn't have the resources to do with employees at that point with advisors. Um, and similarly, you know, I now sit on plenty of advisory boards in return. And, it, you know, for, for Where me- Where do you find your advisors from, Tim? Because that's a good tip in itself, perhaps, for business. I think that's going to vary from company to company and also be based on the location that you're setting up your business in. Certainly, in my experience, two thirds of the advisors found us slash it was a sort of happy coincidence i'd meet them at an event or something uh and then others we've proactively approached because they were you know doing something really quite special in an area that we were looking for advice in um 
But following on from prior discussions in some of our previous episodes, a good number of our advisory board, in fact, I think three of the five, uh, are now investors. And so it's really important to me that when we're taking investment, it's not just the cash, it's the sort of the proverbial smart money that and the advice that comes with that. So Tim, I think it's just important to clarify that we're not talking about an advisory board like a director's board. We're talking about a group of individuals who are, if you like, a sounding board. They're a, they're a collection of consultants and you'll have some kind of voluntary or paid for or maybe equity option arrangement linked to them providing those services. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, certainly in our example at Chimera, we have two of our investors come in on a quarterly basis to sit down and go through sort of sales and marketing strategy and performance. And then another that does the same on our um, research and development side of things. And I, I guess it's a question for Michelle, because for us, it's been very informal. It's entirely voluntary at this point and you know really appreciate the advice that's given from them and i guess from their side it's protecting their investment somewhat but is there a right way or a wrong way to structure things with with advisors um i think it, it comes down to as joe's saying some are paid and some are unpaid so as you're saying in that circumstance that, or that example that you provided they're really looking after their investment they're providing you some guidance along the way that are generally sort of voluntary and assuming not paid and they're really just looking after their interest where I think we want to formalize things a bit more is if there is some sort of paid arrangement and there's some you know basic terms you want to agree between yourselves in terms of you know what what's the termination arrangement if that comes to an end or you know um, what are the, the pay arrangements so if there's something that needs a bit more thinking between the parties there's yeah. a formal arrangement in place there you probably want to document that I guess okay. that's what I'm saying and it does it get more complicated when you have a case of for example if you're paying sweat equity and i don't know the advisor is a foreign national for example is or is it much the same because obviously as an advisor they're not likely to be benefiting from anything like a emi options scheme look i think i mean uh, uh, you know taking that one i mean emi option schemes for a start are only for employees so they're yeah. definitely not going to fall in that category um, and then with employee national foreign nationals, you're going to get a situation where whatever the tax issues are, how they're paying their tax is going to be in either in one other country or in multiple different countries. So, I mean, the similar answer to that question is, yes, it is going to get more complicated too. Yeah. I think you've got to strike the right balance as an early stage company of recognizing that you don't have to take on the burden of the tax liability or the employment arrangement or the engagement arrangement for the person who's going to be hopefully providing you with beneficial advice. Yeah. And so have a conversation with them about what sort of arrangement they want. At the end of the day, it's kind of, you know, largely their issue. But of course, you want to make sure the company's not put in a bad place. Mm -hmm. But look, you've got to find an arrangement which is fit for purpose. You can structure these things to the nth degree. I yeah. think it's important to keep something that's proportionate to a to an early stage company. Mm -hmm. And I the, the other thing that I'll, I'll add from a personal perspective there is when it comes to voluntary versus non-voluntary um, is certainly for me, as, as I mentioned, all of our advisors have been voluntary and that's really encouraged me to give back and pass that forwards now that I'm sitting on other companies' uh, advisory boards. So that, that self-point of self-perpetuation, yeah. I think, is something that's quite nice and certainly very prevalent here in the sort of UK uh, entrepreneurial ecosystem and I've seen it around Europe, US and you know, parts of Asia as well. Um, so generally speaking, asking for advice 
is you know it's, it's far easier than if, you, if you're asking for you know money or something from an individual and most people are willing to give it completely agree with that yeah. you know and we're we're members of various associations without wishing to plug one over another you know that's providing either mentorship to people who are coming up through the ranks you know pro bono legal advice or other you know specialisms and you know we do that as a law firm and, and other organizations do that either on their own account or within their own specialism yeah yeah okay so our, our company has hired they've set up advisory boards they've set up a board of governance they have non-executives they have executive directors michelle what happens when it all goes wrong let's if we could perhaps have when it really goes wrong and you have a a issue where someone is being terminated uh and then also what happens if someone leaves the company because for example you know, they, they just see their career path going in a different way we as, as i've mentioned before we've discussed good and bad leavers already but in terms of the procedures the company should go through what are they going to be okay so our starting point is back to our first question i suppose what have we got there in terms of contractual protections because if we've set that out in the first instance then we're that's our starting point then we can refer back to that to say okay what have we given ourselves in our arsenal so things like you know what is our notice period um you know what what policies and procedures are in place if we've got those in place alongside the contract um you know what's the basis for deciding we want to part ways because that will govern the process we follow um and how long has this person been in employment because i think we touched on very briefly in response to the first question after two years continuous employment that's when people uh, individuals generally gain uh, the majority of their employment law rights so things like the right to bring an unfair dismissal claim the right to redundancy pay those sort of key rights that people know about generally they won't accrue before two years service so mm. sometimes a small business can take quite a commercial approach if they're um, exiting an individual because it hasn't worked out and there's no discrimination or whistleblowing and those sort of things that don't require qualif qualifying service so um but there's kind of you know without you know wishing to kind of make it sound like all companies have been machiavelli and scheming around these sorts of things yeah. there's some important staging dates to bear in mind you know so when your employees are coming to the end of probation period yeah. it actually is worth wait, making a conscious decision as to whether or not they do fit into the business the role of working and so on and so forth and then some of those other dates you know the first year anniversary the second year anniversary are coming up you know, it is worth thinking that, you know, most businesses should have some form of appraisal process, but the, you know, the, the senior managers, the executives might be thinking more consciously about what this then looks like, particularly if it is a early stage business that's going through some, you know, peaks and troughs as they all tend to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yes, the starting point is making sure you've got this probation periods in the contract. <laughs> and then usually they contain the terms that say, um, you know, we have the ability to extend. If you get to the end of the period, you think the six months actually extending on up to maybe another 12 months and you're still cleaning within that two year period that I talked about previously, you've got all that time um, to think about whether this person's right to the business. Yeah. Um, and things are evolving all the time. So it's keeping an active dialogue with your, you know, your your colleagues, your, you know, senior management team and thinking about, you know, is this the right fit? Is this person displaying the behaviours that we want to see as a company and taking active decisions if you let it drift and particularly if the people get over two years, that's when you, you have more difficulty. And sometimes people do let things drift because it's a difficult conversation to have or, you know, it hasn't quite gone the way that they've uh, they've wanted, but they've got their their eye elsewhere, frankly, because there's other priorities in in a you know growing business as well. And and so suddenly they think, okay, this can't continue. We need to progress things. And 
I'd say if we can get to it earlier, that would always. Yeah, and I, I'm right in saying that there, there's a difference between sort of the due process if an employer is underperforming versus if it's a sort of a behavioural issue that's sort of the cause for for them their terminations that is that right yes so that's right so you're talking about capability would be poor performance either due to ill health or just not up to the role um and then another reason would be um conduct so that slots in if they've got unfair dismissal rights that's one of the five reasons for a, a potentially fair dismissal so we need to think about have we got a reason and have we followed a process if we get to unfair dismissal is that that simple really so they're two, two different reasons but nonetheless generally the procedure is broadly the same in terms of you need to look into the background. You want to have an investigatory stage, uh, particularly say, say we're talking about disciplinary matter. Somebody raises something, comes to your attention. You need to have somebody look into that, an investigatory stage. If you decide there's something in it, it goes to a disciplinary hearing. You have somebody hear the hearing and then an appeal stage. Yeah. That's the kind of three step process you'd normally follow. Mm-hmm. Um, so ideally, um, you'd have a different person at each stage with smaller startups. There might be a conversation to be had about who's the right person and the right levels. You might not have enough layers in the organisation for that to keep progressing yeah. in seniority. Um, but trying to keep that as impartial at each stage as possible um, and having a considered um, considered thought process as, as that goes through. That's generally what happens. And that happens in capability processes as well. Okay. Looking into things, um, thinking about is there something in this and progressing on. The difference with capability is that you usually have informal discussions about, you know, this isn't quite what we'd expected. Um, and then um, perhaps more informal performance improvement plan. Yes. If things need to to improve and, you know, individuals aren't getting to where they should be getting to. Yeah. Okay. So that's the sort of the bad. And what happens if someone's leaving with your blessing so for example in in our experience uh we had one lady who she wanted to retrain uh for hr qualifications and we just didn't mm. have the money to fund that so you know she moved on it, it was a good mutual finish but it was a finish nonetheless so how is that going to differ from the, the previous descriptions well it would be less likely you're considering a process like that what you generally do is go back to your contract think about your notice period so you know if they're decided they're resigning um they'll give you notice under the um employment contract so you'll sort of agree that Mm -hmm. sometimes you'll get asked the question of could i go earlier can can you afford to let me go earlier um and that might depend on how quickly you can get someone else back to those sort of discussions we were having earlier about you know how long does that notice period need to be yeah um can you get somebody in established in that role in a shorter period of time if you can you might be willing to say off you go, um, we'll let you go earlier, we'll, we'll curtail the notice period, um, and they'll just work up until the end of that period. Um, they won't be entitled to anything else after that in terms of what the notice period would have been, had you not agreed that. Um, but you'll sometimes be able to work with them and allow things like that to happen. Um, some things we haven't talked about yet, which are sometimes in your arsenal might be useful for you, is gardenly provisions or um, payment in lieu of notice. So yes. sometimes you'll say, um, rather than having the person work in the business, I'd like to put them on guard and leave. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'll have that provision in your contract. You have to refer back to that. So put that in at the outset. And that just means they're not in the business, but they still technically remain employed. Yeah, okay. The difference between that and paying someone in lieu of notice, which you might, you know, people might have heard of, is that they're, when they're paid in lieu of notice, their employment terminates immediately so they can move on to other employment. Right. So guard and leave is usually used where you don't want them to go into a competitor and using all their knowledge yes. in that instant. Yeah. 
Okay. And that's that's a really good place to tie in, I think, to um, non-compete provisions, which uh, an investor who's coming in might well insist on in employment agreements. Yeah. Um, and that they will effectively, um, you know, another another mechanism by which the investor will protect its its investment, and it will be particularly relevant in the case of key employees. Yes. Will effectively say that that a, an employee once that they leave can't go and work for a competitive business for a certain period of time. And I think there's, there's rules about what is it, what is and isn't enforceable in terms of length of that. Yes. But one thing to, to, to think about when we're talking about gardening leave provisions is whether or not the non-compete uh, time period runs alongside the gardening leave or if it starts at the end of the gardening leave period. Yeah, so typically we're providing the employment contracts that um, any restricted period will be reduced by the period that the individual is on garden leave. So that's generally how it works they don't have to go off and go off on garden leave and then start their restricted period there thereafter if they did it would probably be too long to be uh protected as a you know protecting the um company's business interests, which is what we look for so i think in answer to your question yes they all need to be tailored they need to be the right period in the first place but they will reduce if we take a decision like putting in individual garden leave so there we have it we've hired we've grown our company we've fired and we've had people that have outgrown us and likewise us them. So a special thanks to Michelle for joining us in this episode. Thank you very much for coming, Michelle. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, you're welcome. And Michelle and her team at Denton's have the Denton's Employment Law Hub, which is a blog that can answer even more questions than we've covered today. So we're going to wrap it up there for uh, this episode. And the next one that you can tune into will be looking into the rights and responsibilities that a company and its directors face. So until next time, thank you and goodbye.